Isaiah 51. really want you to, to love these various texts in the Bible. Remember that these nine chapters, these nine chapters in, in uh, Isaiah from chapter 49 all the way to chapter 48, um, these nine chapters just reveal the character and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So the last chapters of Isaiah, 40 through 66, are nine chapters each, nine, nine, nine. They all end the same way. They end, there is no rest for the wicked. Those who are wicked are going to end up in a torment, and those who fear the Lord and love the Lord, they will be in heaven with him. So it's such a, a, a neat pattern. The very middle, the middle verse, as you know, is Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray, everyone having turned his own way. But the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. And then we saw in chapter 49 that Jesus is the servant who will come and die for the sins of the world. He will bring salvation not only to Israel, but to all the world, uh, offer salvation to everybody. Then this morning, we see that Jesus is the true disciple where every day, morning by morning, the Father awakens the Lord and then teaches him and says, here, son, here's what you're going to do today. Here's what you're going to say today. And the Lord was not rebellious. But he submitted to the Father. Whatever the Father said, he was willing to do. And we need to be like that as well. We need to be attentive and obedient and responsive to the Lord. So when we read the Bible, we read it for relationship. We don't read it for just information. We read it to grow in a relationship. And every day we should be more obedient, more responsive, more attentive. And, but tonight, we're going to take a look at um, Isaiah 51. So I'm just going to set it up and, and probably give you the main points. I think you will enjoy this. I know I do. So, and I don't know, is this not working? Am I not? I, 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 I can't see. There we go. All right. Now we're on. Okay, so, easier for me to walk around. All right, the setting of Isaiah 51 is the pilgrimages to Israel. So I'm going to take you back real quick. In Old Testament Israel, three times a year, God required every Jewish male, every Jewish male to go to Jerusalem Wherever you lived, if you lived close to Jerusalem, you didn't have a far walk. If you lived way up north, you had to go all the way from the north to Jerusalem three times a year. That's a major undertaking. You're talking 60, 70, 80, 90, maybe 100 miles. You would have to walk over rocky terrain, but you would not be walking alone. You would probably bring your wife and your children. So you'd make it a family affair. Family, we're going to get up. We're going to go three times a year, once in April, once in May, and once in September. And we're going to go to Jerusalem, and we're going to worship God right at the temple. So get excited. Get your clothes packed. Let's go. And you would get your whole, all your provisions in a bag. You would start walking down the road. And then you see the billings, and they come out of their property. Hey, Joe and Dana, they're going to the temple of Jerusalem to worship. Let's go with them. So now we're walking, we're talking, we're singing, because we know we're going to the place where God dwells. Where God dwells in Shekinah glory, and we're going to offer animal sacrifices. Well, then we're walking down, and we see the Hansons, and the Morgans, and the Whitings, and pretty soon, there's a whole caravan of people on the main road, and what are we doing? We're going to Zion. We're going to Jerusalem, because God has commanded it. And what, we're, what are we talking about? We're talking with Mr. Wita here, my dad, and we're saying, hey, we're going to renew our commitment to the Lord. We want him to know that he is most important to us. We're going to offer animal sacrifices, and um, we're going to worship him. 
together in purity and, and with great joy. And so we're singing, we're reciting scripture, we're laughing. At night, we're going to have campfires because it's going to take a couple of days, if not a week or more, to get down there and then a week to get back. So can you see all the fun this is? It is so much fun. And you do it three times. But when you get to Jerusalem, you begin to walk up the mountain 3,000 feet, almost straight up. And you're walking and you're singing. And the closer you get, the louder you get singing. And you're shouting and you're singing and you're dancing and you're ready to eat. You get up to the temple and you're offering animal sacrifice after animal sacrifice. And what do they do with the meat? They barbecue it. They grill it. And you get a portion of it. So you get some of the meat. The priest gets some of the meat. It's a great deal. There's fresh vegetables. There's fruits of all kind. And then next thing you know, everybody from our community is down in Jerusalem. We're worshiping. We're having a big feast with meat that was part of the animal sacrifice to God. The best was given to God. The, less, the rest is for us. And we are, we are just having fun. Can you picture doing this three times a year? I think it's great. It's an exciting thing. The problem is... You guys are captive in Babylon. You're Babylonian captives. You, how long have you been there? 70 years. Have you ever been to Jerusalem? Most likely, no. Have you ever made pilgrimage for 70 years? No. Maybe your parents did and your grandparents, but you never experienced it. You think, oh, I heard, my sto- I heard stories of old man Weta. I heard stories of dad going down to Jerusalem and having fun, but I've never experienced it. I've never done it. I've never done it, and so I don't know what this is all about. I don't even care to do it. I'm not going to go with the Billings to Jerusalem and have a big barbecue feast and worship God at the temple. I don't want to do that. I'm going to live here and make money and worship the idols of Babylon. Do you see what's going on? God says, wait a minute. Don't do that. Get out of Babylon. Get into Jerusalem. So this whole pilgrimage setting is in the back of your mind as you're reading this. Now, God is not addressing all the Jewish people in the text. He's only addressing a certain group of people. Let's look at who they are. Isaiah chapter 51, verse 1. Listen to me, God says. This is a great call. Listen to me, you who follow after righteousness, you who seek the Lord. All right? So who is he addressing? People that seek after righteousness... They're following holiness, and they are seeking the Lord. They understand. They understand that the holiness of life flows out of a relationship with the Lord. They're pursuing holiness, but they know they can only have that in a relationship with the Lord. Because they're seeking righteousness. They are seeking holiness, but they're seeking it in a personal relationship with their God. So they already know the heart of true religion. Religion is not works, it's not duties, it's not rituals. It is a heart relationship with the Lord that brings about a life of holiness. And so they're seeking after righteousness, or following after righteousness, seeking the Lord. Look at verse 7 with me. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. Just like, I'm still reminded of the the camper's testimonies this morning. And just even what Josh said about the heart, I mean the head, the heart, and the mouth. Listen to this. Listen to me, you who know righteousness. See, they knew it in their head. They knew holiness and righteousness. the The very character of God. But look at the next phrase. You people in whose heart is my law. See, the law was not just written on a tablet of stone because it had no power to change their life. God's word was written on their heart. They were born again. They had a new disposition. They had a new nature. They were truly born. See, people in the Old Testament were born again, just like you and I. We are born again. God writes the law on our heart. Romans chapter 8 verse 4 says, we obey the righteous standard of the law because the Holy Spirit has written the law on our heart. They knew that their character 
their behavior was all centered on the word of God through the Holy Spirit working because they have a personal relationship with their God. It's really, it's a small group of people. So out of all of the Babylonian captives, there's only a very, like a kind of a remnant like tonight. There's only a small group of people that truly follow righteousness, seek the Lord, and have God's law written on their heart. So here's their, here's their problem. They have a lot of doubts. And I'm not going to get very far tonight, but that doesn't matter. Here's what their doubts are. And I think you guys can understand this in the church age. If you take a look at, let's say there, I'm just going to throw a number out. Let's say there are a million Jewish people in Babylon. How many true believers? I would say very few. A Daniel, a Shadrach, a Meshach, and Abednego. But I would say out of all the Jewish captives, there's only very few that are believers. The majority of people are against them. The Babylonians are against them, and their Jewish friends are against them. So their thought is this. God, we can't go back to Jerusalem. We are small. We're tiny. There's not many of us who believe. Now, put this in the church age. Do, do you, how many true, genuine believers do you think we have in the world? I mean, we have some in Haiti. We have some in Peru. I mean, we have some all over the place. But I would say the majority of people walking on this earth are not God-lovers. They're not God-fearers. They're not following righteousness, seeking the Lord. Right? I think the true Christianity, true, genuine Christianity, is very, very small. And it seems like the world is against us. The laws are against us. The weight of the world is against us. And it almost is like, Lord, how can we serve you and preach the gospel? We are so small. We are so weak. Here's what God says. The end of verse 1. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug. So go back and look at your beginnings, Israel. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. Abraham and Sarah, uh, there's so many doubles here. It's like Abraham, Sarah, hole and, you know, hole and rock. But the whole idea is this. Is there life in a rock? No, there's not life in a rock. So it's very funny that God says, okay, let me show you what I can do in your life. Look back to the, hole, to the rock from which you came from and the hole from which you were dug. Both are, are inanimate. Then he says, look back to Abraham and Sarah. When Abraham and Sarah had, had Isaac, were they able to bear children? No, they were dead. They were just dead as rocks. Physically, they could not bear children. Abraham and Sarah were like rocks. No way could you get life out of them. But God, did, did God give them life? You bet. He gave them a baby boy named Isaac. And even Sarah said, God, you can't, make, you can't give me a child. I'm too old. I'm way past childbearing age. And Abraham, he's as good as dead. There's just no way we're going to have a baby. And next thing you know, God's like, boom. And Sarah's like, oh boy, morning sickness. And now nine months. And a little toddler. And I'm 90. Oh boy. You know, can you picture this? Death thinks she has it around. There you go. Death thinks she has it around. Yeah, just think about Sarah. Oh, can you imagine? When, when Isaac's just a five-year-old, she's a hundred or whatever, and she must be like, oh boy, Isaac, settle down. I can't keep up with you. But the, this is what I, God is saying. Listen, Israel, here's what I did to Abraham. I gave him life when there was no life. And out of one man and one child, Isaac, there is a, mul- a multitude of Jewish people on the earth. Can God take one man who is childless and make of him a mighty nation? Can he? Yes, because he already did it. Can he make that nation in the future the greatest nation in the world? Yes, he can. And can Jesus come and rule as the king of that nation? Yes, and he will. So God is saying, oh, stand back. You who follow righteousness, you who seek the Lord, you who have God's law written on your heart, 
Do not be afraid. Do not doubt. If I can give children to a rock and a hole, Abraham and Sarah, and I can make them a great nation, I can certainly bring you back to Jerusalem. Not just a small remnant of believers, but it's going to be a giant, it's going to be a giant crowd of believers in Jerusalem someday. You have to understand, right now we're the minority. There is a day coming when everyone on this earth will know and love the Lord. Isaiah chapter 4, a holy remnant. Of course, there'll be unbelievers later, but boy, the believers are going to conquer. The believers are going to conquer. We are overcomers. Just so you know, we are overcomers. Look at verse 2 again, quickly. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. For I called him alone, a single man, a one man out of all the world. And I blessed him and increased him. I made him the father of a, mul- a major nation with many, many, many children. Look at verse 3. All right, so hang on. So that's, first of all, that's their doubts. Their, do- their doubts are, we're too weak. We're not strong enough. We're not big in numbers. There's very few of us. We're never going to survive. God says, listen, you will survive. If I can do what I did for Abraham, I'm going to do it for you. And I do think God will always keep a remnant of the church on the earth. No matter how bad things get, there will always be a uh, believers on the earth in the church age until the rapture is just a promise. No, no doubt, no fear. Now the second doubt is this: that these. Now you remember, you're the believing remnant. You're, Jew, you're captives in Babylon. Can God ever take the burning wasteland of Jerusalem and make it pretty again? Can He ever make it a really nice place? Here's the answer, verse three: For the Lord will comfort Zion; He will comfort all of her waste places. He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Now, so not only um, they don't have to have any doubts, but they have faith that God, that God is going to do this. God is going to transform this planet back to the Garden of Eden. Can you imagine the Garden of Eden? What the, what the birch trees look like in the Garden of Eden? Can you imagine going and picking up a carrot out of the Garden of Eden? You'd probably have to have four guys pulling up the carrot out of the ground. Remember how many people it took to haul grapes out of the promised land? And that was after the sin-cursed world had been around for a long time. Do you know when God transforms this planet to be like the Garden of Eden, the rivers, the lakes, the streams, the waters, the, the foliage, the birds, can you imagine how incredible this wasteland is going to look, what, the, what it's going to look like? That is the we have to have faith in that. That's what sustains us on our journey. Is we're living for something far greater than what we have right here. We're not living day, for, day by day just for the next meal, the next vacation, the next thing I can purchase. We're not looking for anything. We're looking for something far greater that's going to last a lot longer for all eternity. And God says, I will comfort your waste places. I'm going to make you like Eden again. And it's going to be glorious. But there's a third thing that you'll find. A third theme. So there's three themes running through the whole text. They have doubts. The small remnant of weak believers has doubts. God says, no fear. I'll make you great just like I made Abraham great in number. Their second problem, or their second, the second theme is they trust the Lord to do what he says. He's going to make all their desolate areas beautiful and prosperous again. But the third theme, listen, it's there's a joy awaiting them. So you're going to find all three themes going through this passage, one after another after another. The third theme, there is a joy that awaits them in the future. No fun being captive in Babylon. No fun at all. But there is great, great joy being with the Lord. So the end of verse 3, joy and gladness will be found in it. Listen, joy and gladness will be found in it. 
Can I t- take you to the millennial kingdom after the church is taken out in the rapture and the seven years of tribulation and Jesus comes back and he sets up the kingdom finally and he makes this whole world like the Garden of Eden? Can you imagine the joy and the gladness? Jesus is sitting at a table. The crowds are around him. We're having a feast. There's worship services. There's music. There's work going on. The whole planet has been regenerated. There's no pollution. There's no filth. Any- anybody who sins is put down right away. With, an, with a rod of iron, those days are going to be days full of joy and gladness. Now, we have joy and gladness to a certain degree, don't we? I mean, we, we get, we're happy to sometimes during the day, and there, we find joy throughout the weeks, you know, for certain things, but I, th- I think most people live in a state of misery. I, I really do. I think most people do not live with an inner joy that sustains them. I, I think most people that I, that I talk to out in the community are depressed and discouraged and disheartened and angry and, and envious and bitter and all sorts of things. Well, not here. Joy and gladness will be found in it. Thanksgiving and the voice of melody. It'll be a time of song and thanksgiving and joy and gladness. Now, we're going to just kind of tear through the passage quickly. You'll see all of these themes reoccur. They're doubting that they're going to be able to be a great nation full of believers. They will. They have a faith that God's going to restore them and the land, and they know that this great joy awaits them. Let's keep going. Verse 4. Listen to me, my people, and give ear to me, O my nation, for law will proceed from me, and I will make my justice peace or rest. As a light of the peoples, my righteousness is near. Salvation is, is coming forth. My arms will judge the peoples. The co- Listen, the coastlands will wait upon me, and on my arm they will trust. Who are the coastlands? Gentiles or Jews? Coastlands are Gentiles. The Jews are God's people. The coastlands are all the other nations. So God says, hey, not only are the Jewish people going to be saved and restored, I'm going I'm to restore Gentiles by the boatloads. People from Africa, South America, North America, Canada, all the Japanese, the Chinese, the Thailand, the, you know, all of those people, they're going to be, many, many will be saved from all the coastlands. And they will trust the Lord. Verse 6, lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath. All right, if I think there's anything stable on earth, and I just think about Matt's testimony, boy, that rock, how that canoe just pinned that boy's ankle, and you're talking, this earth is stable and almost immovable. Even the force of many men can hardly move things with rushing water. Doesn't it seem like this world is so stable and secure? God says, uh, hang on, it's not. Verse 6, look on the earth beneath, Look, look at your eyes to the heavens. Look on the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish away like smoke. The earth will grow old like a garment. And those who dwell in it will die in, the, in like manner. But my salvation will be forever. And my righteousness will not be abolished. You think this, these heavens and earth are always going to be here? You think you can go out and look at the Big Dipper all the rest of your life? No. This is temporary. You think this earth is so stable with its rocks and its hills? It's not. Everything is going to go up in smoke and vanish. But what is going to be left behind? What is forever according to that verse? Salvation is forever. Salvation is forever. Now, if you continue going through this text, I want you to do it on your own. It's good to have some homework. But I want you to look for the doubts that they might have and then the faith that will sustain them and the joy that awaits them. You'll see that theme. I'm going to give you a couple of verses to close, though. Look at verse, um, well, verse 9 is a really great one. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. All right, now who, wait a minute, who's the arm of the Lord? 
It's not, Jew- it's not the Jewish people. It's not the Gentiles. Who's the arm of the Lord? Who's the strength of the Lord? Jesus. So it's like Isaiah now says, awake, awake, Jesus. Start your program. Come back and set it up. It's almost like we in the church, what's our prayer? Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. quickly. We want him to show up and finish things off. We want him to make an end of all of this world and bring about a, a land of righteousness. So here, it's like, awake, awake, arm of the Lord. Come now, get started and build this kingdom. Verse 11. So the ransomed of the Lord shall return. They're going to come back unto the righteous king. They'll come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy. See, that's a hymn. And come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Oh, and it goes on and on and on. Do you see how great these verses are? But let's go to the very end. Look at chapter 52, verse 7. And the whole reason I want to do uh, all the way to verse 12 real quick is we start, we start the next one about Jesus being the sin-bearing Savior. Uh, not next Sunday because of the Smiths being here, but the week after. And I only have one morning message to preach, and that's going to be Isaiah 53. So we've got to get this. But look at verse 7 with me. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. When Jesus comes back to earth, the people that bring the message of God's return, of, his, of Jesus coming to rule and to reign, they are bringing some great news, good tidings, great joy. They're going to proclaim deliverance. Uh, whoever gets to be that messenger, I think it's going to be Elijah. Elijah's going to come back and he's going to proclaim, your Savior is here. Our God reigns. He conquers all the enemy. Of course, that's the song we sing tonight as one of our hymns. And then, here's the, here's the, you want the application for all of this? Because there is an application, believe it or not. It's verses 11 and 12. Chapter 52, 11 and 12. Stay with me, everybody. Listen. Remember, you're captives in Babylon. You're believers. And you're captive in Babylon. The 70 years are over. We're now going back to Jerusalem. But there's a certain, we, so there's a, here's the challenge. Depart, depart, God says. He's, he's already told us to listen. He told us to be awake. And now he's telling us to depart. Depart, depart. Go out from there. Go out from where? From Babylon. Yep, go out from Babylon. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Be clean. All right. When we leave Babylon... We're, we're going to leave, and we're not going to take any of the trash with us. We're not taking any of their idols. We're not going to take any of their propaganda. We are going to leave them entirely. Touch no unclean thing. When we leave Babylon, we're not going When they left Egypt, I've already said this a number of times in Old Testament stories that I've shared with you, but when, when Israel left Egypt under Moses, they took Egyptian gods and goddesses with them. They put statues in their backpacks. And for 40 years, they carried Egyptian gods and goddesses in a backpack when they're supposed to be worshiping the true God. God says, don't do that again. Touch no unclean thing. Do not bring a pagan idol with you. Do not touch anything that doesn't belong to the Lord. The only thing you can bring are the vessels of the temple that Nebuchadnezzar stole. So take those and bring them back to the temple. But don't bring with you anything else. Don't bring any idols or unclean things from, from Babylon. And then this last verse, verse 12. For you shall not go out with haste. 
In the days of the Passover, leaving Egypt, did they go out with haste? Very much. They went very quickly. Now God says, don't, leave, don't go in a hurry. Take your time. Walk out with dignity. I'm in charge. And um, so walk out slowly. Don't go in haste. Don't go in flight. For the Lord God will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. I will protect you and take care of you all the way. Now, what's the challenge? The Apostle Paul uses this text in the context of the pilgrimage that I just told you about, leaving Babylon and not bringing idols with you, he says to the church, so this is for you and I, he quotes these verses, 11 and 12, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says, You and the church do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Do not ever be yoked with unbelievers. Because what agreement does a believer have with an unbeliever? They can't... They can't they don't have the same mindset and perspectives of things, so there's no agreement. There's no fellowship. There's another um, section as Paul's explaining this. He says, what symphony does Christ and Belial have together? What accord do they have? Can you guys picture Jesus and the devil getting together at a table, and they're saying, Jesus says, okay, devil, what can you and I do together, joint participation, to accomplish God's will? Could Jesus and the devil ever find agreement in any area to accomplish God's will? No! So Paul says, how dare we in the church link ourselves with unbelievers in that way? We just, we don't. We're, we're distinct. We're different. We're not better than them. We're not, we're not saying we're more holy than anybody else. We're simply saying, I'm not going to link up with unbelievers because they will take me down. They will. Don't date unsaved people. Don't marry unsaved people. Um, if, if you go into business, don't go into business with unsaved people. I think there's, there's some huge things. You're going to operate differently. An unbeliever may choose to cheat and lie and swindle. Who knows what they might do, but you know, we just don't, we can't do that because what kind of agreement do these things have? The temple of idols and the temple of God, what agreement do you have? There's none. So Paul says, depart, get out of there. Don't touch any unclean thing, but live for Jesus and live for him alone. All right? So that's the whole goal. Live for Jesus. Listen, we're a small group of people on earth. But there is, as, as Jan mentioned before the service, there's a lot of power here. The power of the Holy Spirit. Not our strength, but the Spirit's strength. And if 120 weak disciples on the day of Pentecost, in a matter of months, can t- turn the whole world upside down, then the small group of believers at Faith Baptist, living for Jesus, getting out of the world and away from the idols of the world, do you know what we can do to transform our, our own community? It's phenomenal what we can do. Really, it is. So let's be encouraged. God has a great plan for this planet. There's a joy that awaits you. You just can't even, experience, I don't, can't even explain it to you. It's going to be so great. Thank you, Father, for our time in the book of Isaiah, chapter 51, just thinking about the pilgrimages and um, what the people were missing out on as captives in Babylon, and they just doubted that they could ever succeed. They doubted they were ever going to be pop- prosperous enough or big enough of a nation. But you, you assured them of that. You gave them faith to, um, in your, that you would restore and regenerate this whole planet. And then there's a great joy that awaits each one of us. So help us not to live for today or to live even for the pleasures of this world. Help us to have um, the mind of Christ and to know and to love him with our whole heart. Thank you for what you're going to do this week in our life. And I pray that you'll protect our church family while they're busy traveling and working and serving and 
Watch over us this whole week. Protects us in a very special way. To the praise and honor and glory of Jesus. Amen. All right, great.